Hello from Austin, home of Silver Winds, the Tesla Cybertruck, and everyone in high tech except Larry Ellison. But never mind Larry Ellison because Austin also has episode 187 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Tuesday night, December 15th, 2020. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek, and Joe Biden, Bobby, is still the president-elect. That guy has won this election so many he times. Won, he has won more elections than any man. He has won the presidency more times than anyone since even probably including Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Although I guess, strictly speaking, that makes him about 500 at this point because he had a few prior runs that yeah. didn't work. Fair uh, enough. He's, he's gradually taking the lead on himself. Uh, the Electoral College has done its duty. Not The, the Electoral him. College has graduated. <laughs> so we we've got Trump Landia entering a new phase for that recurring segment on our show. From now on, yes, the the the, the desperate last uh, last stand phase. Trump Landia in Twilight is the new name mm. of the Trump Landia like segment. Like uh, we've got a lot to talk about under that heading. Bill Barr is out. Jeff Rosen's in. Texas had a suit, or rather, I want people to say not Texas had a suit. Ken Paxton had a suit. Whether he has mm. a pardon too, we will find out soon enough. Um, We've got a, uh, speaking of the cyber truck, we've got sort of a cyber segment. We've got the solar winds breach story, which is a complex affair. We'll, we'll lay out a few basic elements of it. Not yet a lot of legal angle to it, though I suspect there's got to be. Uh, I've got a tip, TikTok, TikTok for you. An update on the TikTok situation. The DC circuit heard oral, oral argument yesterday and almost no one paid any attention, but uh, I listened to it. I'll say a few things about it. Counterterrorism, um, we've got a variety of things. We've got Katie Bo Williams' story about DOD possibly withdrawing logistical and other forms of support for CIA covert action activities involving counterterrorism. We've got, believe it or not, Steve, there's an issue with the trial judge in the 9-11 case. Yeah, we're, 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 we're going backwards on trial judges now in the 9-11 case. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, that's right. The time is starting to loop. Oh, you know what we should have done? We should have a sound effect for like Groundhog Day. We should have, I got you, babe. You'd have <laughs> to play right at the 6 a.m. moment. Um, um, or not. On that. Yeah, Seriously. Or, or not. Um, Karen, you know, Karen, Karen and I were recording, we were recording our, our new podcast and we were using Zencaster and I introduced her to some of the, the built-in sound features and she was not happy with it. I was that. about to say, I can tell you right now that that was a hard no. It's, it's so Karen. I mean, you know, she loves that. Um, speaking of, by the way, I'm, I'm interrupting you for seconds to say, uh, in loco parenthesis, we had our debut. We, we had our, our soft open. Um, Tell me, like, what was it like? How did it go? I thought it went really well. We've been getting a lot of really positive feedback. Uh, in loco parenthesis, if you missed last week's episode, is Karen and my new podcast about parenting and lawyering in that order where we don't purport to be experts on either, but hope to be at least empathetic about what we're all going through during these these crazy times. So we posted our very, very first episode late Sunday night. Um, we're already, I think, up to like 1,300 downloads, which is really cool. Like I was well, not expecting that. Yeah. Um, and our second episode is going up uh, late Wednesday night, early Thursday morning, and features our interview with um, really the incomparable Dahlia Lithwick. So oh, wow. we're excited. Wow. Yeah. Are you guys going to do uh, interviews on most episodes? Yeah. So our plan, I mean, so the plan for the podcast is that we're going to do three to four regular episodes a month, each of which will be an interview. Um, so one of the things that we want to do is just sort of expose people to different, 
you know, different experiences, different backgrounds, different practices, et cetera. Um, and then we're going to have one bonus episode that's going to be behind a paywall for Patreon supporters. Um, oh. I know, right? Monetizing a podcast. Crazy, crazy. idea. That's crazy. Um, so we're going to have one bonus, um, like Ask Us Anything um, podcast um, episode a month. So that's the plan for now. We'll see how it goes. But at least so far, off to a good start. So if you can't get enough of me from this Fakakta podcast, um, or, or, if, or, or if you find Bobby to be insufficiently critical of me on this podcast, well, then local parenthesis is the podcast for you. That's great. Um, I feel like I've got to figure out like my own sort of like spinoff. This is, this is like our, our band's doing well, but now you've got a side project with the spouse. I feel like I got to go put out a solo album too. Maybe it'd be a, maybe it'd be music related. We'll see. I mean, I mean, I I will say, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to knock you off your game, although I already have. I I will say (laughs) that I really hope that we are soon going to come to a moment you and I had feared the podcast would encounter, like within moments of its launch in January 2017. Like when we launched this podcast, we were both terrified that we'd run out of stuff to say. Right, exactly. Um, And we had all these deep dives planned for like, you know, this week, because there's nothing going on, we're going to talk about the War of 1812. Exactly. Well, and, and for a while there, we did have a couple of years back a phase of some good deep dives. I know mm-hmm. those were well-received. Deep dive. Chances are good in 20, 2021, this, the sign of return to normalcy will be the return of the deep dives. Indeed. Uh, Indeed. Um, speaking of, well, not- 2021. So and the guys, on the Pentagon beat, we've got an update in the Briggs litigation. We've got- Womp, womp. <laughs> Sorry, man. We've got. Uh, yeah, you can see where that one's going. We gotta have it. Surely you have a sound effect for that. Do you have a womp, womp? Do we have sad trombone? I really do. I will find a way to add sad trombone. Right. All that it has up here, like all that's built in the Zencaster, is dramatic piano, which I don't think is the, quite the mood we're going G- for. Give me a shot of that, please. This is a dramatic piano. The president has threatened to veto the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year, for fiscal year 2021. <laughs> But he may be overridden. I like that. That's good. <laughs> we uh, promised we'd, we'd hit a few more highlights from the NDAA. We'll check in on its veto or not veto status. And then I'm going to talk about Section 1702 of the Ooh. NDAA, which is uh, a tweak to the sensitive military cyber operations uh, concept. And then the moment everyone's been waiting for. No spoilers yet, but we will be talking about the latest episode of The Mandalorian. Although, have you seen, Steve, have you seen The Mandalorian? I have not seen The Mandalorian. Okay. Um, at an appropriate is this, time. Is this, the par- is this the par- Is this like the every Mandalorian episode in two minutes and 30 seconds thing? Yeah, you've seen that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, haven't, I haven't actually watched it. I just saw that it exists. What? Oh, it's good. Um, it's so good. I've been a little busy. But also, um, my understanding, although I have not had a chance to, to verify this, is that season five of The Expanse dropped on Amazon Prime today. Oh my god, that's so great! And it makes me so sad that I guess this will be the last one because I gather mm-hmm. that the the expanse is in fact bounded. <laughs> exactly, they did find the outer limits there. <laughs> uh, but I also, on a happier note, that I heard the next volume in the series in the actual books. Which, folks, if you like Expanse, the TV show, it's great. It really is. But the books are amazing. James S. A. Corey is the the pen name of of both. Uh, Dan Abraham and Ty Frank. And so they're, it's a collaborative uh, operation and it, it is awesome. I mean, it's really, really good. I, I think it takes a couple of chapters to, to catch the wave, but once you get going, it's, it's really outstanding. So there's your recommendation uh, for sci-fi for the week. Let's, uh, Oh, 
You know what, Steve? Before we jump into it, let's make good on our long-promised threat to unleash <laughs> another charitable endeavor. We're unleashing a kraken. <laughs> you know, they really ruined that phrase. That's another they have ruined thing that phrase. I don't will know never, about. It will never. No one will ever be able to like neutrally use that phrase again. In the name of Harry Hamlin, they have ruined the phrase. Like, like the verb to Trump. Like it's just, it's never going to be neutral again. It's just not the same. Well, no. um, so what have we got? We've got our uh, our new announcement. So it's not t-shirts. Instead, we are auctioning off a chance to co-host a show episode with us, much as we previously noted we, we've done recently for students. Uh, and by the way, that episode's coming up in January. We're really looking forward to that. Um, Get ready, Jake. Yeah, Jake, we're waiting for you, man. He's probably not even listening to this. Eh. Yeah, probably bad prep, bad, bad prep work. But those of you who are listening, here's the deal. Um, starting now and running until a month from now, January 15th, is it's a, it's sort of a raffle. Ooh, the tweet literally just went live. Oh, did it? I literally just got the oh, alert on that's Twitter. That's awesome. Way to go, Micah. Good time, man. So here's, here's how this works. Uh, to be eligible to have your name in the hopper, we're going to draw a name and whoever we draw, that's our co-host. And we'll figure out a mutually agreeable time that works for everybody. And we'll, we'll sort it all out there. You don't need to have any trepidation at all about doing this. Um, to, to earn the right to be in the raffle, though, you can only enter once. You need to give. And specifically, you need to give to Casa Marianea, which is an Austin agency that provides shelter, legal aid, medical resources to uh, displaced immigrants and others in need. Now, on our uh, Twitter feed, I think Steve's probably in the process of retweeting and retweeting. He's already <laughs> done it. You can find the link there. But if you're trying to do this, if you're driving, please don't try to write this down as we go. But what you do is you go to the uh, the rally.org page for Casa Marianea. That's rally, R-A-L-L-Y dot org slash Casa Marianea is one word. That's C-A-S-A-M-A-R-I-A-N-E-L-L-A. You got to give at least five bucks. Don't just give five bucks, though. Aim high. Give till it hurts, folks. It's like a it's like a campaign fundraiser here. And what you do is you'll get an email confirmation from rally.org that'll that'll indicate your donation. You forward that. And, and Steve, this is my favorite part. I don't know if you've noticed it yet. We set up a, a new Strauss Center email address to receive it. This is the way at strausscenter.org. Oh, excellent. This is the way is one word, obviously. This is the way at strausscenter.org. Um, our team will collect that at the Strauss Center. We'll get all the names and we'll do a random drawing on, a, on an upcoming episode after January 15th. And then we'll get in touch with whoever it is that is I guess you would say gotten the lucky uh, the lucky selection, although I'm not so sure. And, and I want to say, I mean, I, first of all, I'm I'm really excited about the chance to support Casa Mayanea, but I also I'm also really excited that like you know this is a thing where you know five bucks gets you the exact same chances of winning the raffle as as five hundred. Exactly, um, exactly. Uh, in the spirit of the season, right? It's yep. Just you're giving, and uh, you decide what's comfortable. Um, and we're just excited for anything. Anyone, anything somebody feels comfortable giving. Thank you for doing that. Uh, Steve, as long as we're in sponsorship mode, we're not actually sponsored by these people, but what are you drinking tonight? I'm drinking my favorite, the Pineapple Austin East Ciders. Nice. Um, but but honorable mention, Bobby, goes to a large format Hit Hitachi No Nest White Ale 
Hidoshino Nest White Ale, which I found at Whole Foods the other day. Wow. Well, is this one of the ones that Whole Foods has? It's like the 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 one-off bottles with the really cool labels. Uh-huh. Is it big? Um, is it like I, I mean, I've been I've been a I've been a Hidoshino Nest White Ale um fan since the summer I spent in Japan in 2013. I mean, I love that stuff. Um and it's not the easiest to get in the States, but now you can actually get the the 10 ounce bottles, at least in some places in Austin. You can get them at um, Central Market, you can get them at um, HEB sometimes. There's a Japanese supermarket actually up on Burnet that's really good. But Whole Foods had the large format, and I'm I'm more of a large format kind of guy. <laughs> uh, that's pretty good. You know what? Um, I spent, when I was in litigation, so I practiced for a few years at Davis Polk in New York and got on a case where we needed to be in Japan a lot, which was super cool and interesting. And uh, definitely enjoyed those, like a, a, a crisp, Japanese uh, ale or lager are, is, is a great thing. So I, I commend your choice. I'm drinking tonight Austin Beer Works Fire Eagle, my favorite local uh, craft IPA uh, in the lovely blue and red can. So um, it sounds we're, we're obviously you know, hoping that one or the other of these companies will say, you guys are great. Free drinks. You're now officially sponsored by us. Probably not going to happen, but we'll still keep consuming your product because we like it. Um, let's get to the show, and it is time to enter Trumplandia in Twilight. Now, I think we all recognize that Trumplandia is not actually fully going away after uh, the inauguration. In fact, we could be transforming into some other, even more Trumplandia part due type phase. But right now, it's Trumplandia in Twilight. Steve, Bill Barr is out, and, and when the f- word was first circulating that he was leaving, you know, with only you know just shy of the finish line. There was some framing of that decision that made it sound like this was sort of this last ditch attempt to be seen to draw a line, to be seen as historically like he stood up at the very end because he wouldn't go along with this or that thing relating to the completely bogus fraud claims. Um, But then I read his resignation letter and I decided that is not actually what he's doing here. Uh, Have you read this thing? I have. Okay, so you you know, he never says he resigns. I may or may not come to the office anymore. You may not see me as often. December 23rd is my last day. Whether that's because I'm resigning or being fired, yeah, we'll let history decide. All right. So do you, do you, is that what you think explains this? Uh, that he actually is uh, sort of sucking up to the bitter end and that he didn't want to go or that he wanted to go, but just felt like he didn't want to be framed as anything other than 100% always supportive of everything this man happens to decide to say or do? I don't know. I, I, mean, I just don't know because it all depends on one critical fact, not in evidence, which is whether there's something Trump asked him to do that he refused to do. Mm. Um, and if the answer to that is yes, that really colors the story in a way that if the answer is no, it doesn't, yeah. right? If the answer is no, it just looks like, you know, he sees that the ship is sinking and he just wants to get off before the last couple of weeks things get really crazy. Um, if the answer is yes, you know, that's that's a different story. Yeah, and then it raises the question: Will the same question then be put to the acting? So, so Brett, so my reaction—I mean, this is funny—I've become so like conditioned to Trump vacancy nonsense. Um, my reaction was: This is nefarious if they don't go to Jeff Rosen, and it's not nefarious if they do. Right, because there's, uh, and no, so, there's no specific reason to think that Jeff Rosen's like somehow. In, if anything, I would think slightly less in the can for yes, Trump than I, I completely agree. I, I, w- I would prefer Jeffrey Rosen as the Attorney General to Bill Barr. Um, and, you know, I think it was the same tweet thread where Trump announced that Barr was was leaving, 
where he announced that Rosen would be yep. the the acting AG. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I got to say, I am I am not inclined to give any of these guys the benefit of the doubt, but that actually made me think this was less of a story. Yep, I agree. I agree. That seems right. Um, speaking of speaking of less of a story, Ken, the Ken Paxton suit. That's oh my god! Suit. I speaking of, recognize speaking, that, of, speaking uh, of attorneys general. As our attorney general, and by the way, non-Texans or those not familiar with Texas, we don't have a unitary executive branch in Texas. We have separate elections for various statewide offices. Kim Paxton is separately elected. He's not he's not appointed by uh, Greg Abbott, our governor, and confirmed by the Texas Senate. He, he got elected in his own right. So this is his doing. Uh, the suit we talked about last time, as you and I expected, uh, Thrown out, perhaps, perhaps I would even venture to say thrown out with a little more vigor and dispatch than perhaps we would have even expected. Um, I mean, it didn't, it didn't linger long there on that docket. So in, in, in a, I, sort of a, is it a triumph of normalcy? I have a lot of feelings about this case. Um, many of which I have said on Twitter. <laughs> um, I will say this. I, what happened Friday night in the Supreme Court is literally what I predicted, um, where the court summarily threw out the lawsuit and where Justices Thomas and Alito reiterated their longstanding view that the court lacks discretion to deny leave to file um, in a very short sort of statement from both of them that went out of its way to say that's not to say we're supporting any of this nonsense. Right. Right. Um, then led to further criminology, like, oh, by saying they're not supporting it, or are they saying that they would maybe perhaps support it or not not support it? Right. And so and so and so what I so so let me just say, I mean, I think it's worth parsing this, right? So for folks who haven't read the order, you should, because I think it, it's a short read. There actually is a two-sentence substantive statement from the court that the motion for leave to file was being denied because Texas lacks a quote judicially cognizable interest, unquote. And therefore, there's no standing under Article Three of the Constitution. This led to the the nation's constitutional lawyer in chief trying to figure out what the hell the standing doctrine is on Twitter. That was fun, um, but the the that I'd always thought, Bobby, that standing was the most obvious of the many, right. many, many procedural flaws with this lawsuit. In our prior discussion of this merits yes. suit. Um, the and then Thomas and Alito, Alito writes a very very short separate statement joined by Justice Thomas that just says I believe that we lack discretion to deny leave to file. See my prior dissent on this exact question in a case with slightly less political implications. Um, I would grant leave to file and no other relief. I express no views on you know uh, something like I express no other views. And the way I parse that, Bobby, is. Texas didn't just file a motion for leave to file. Texas also sought emergency relief through a TRO or injunction. I take the no other relief to be Alito saying, I would not grant the motion for any kind of extraordinary relief, and I'm not saying anything else, right? And so he's not saying, I think these claims are meritless, but he's not saying, I think these claims are meritorious. He's just saying, I just, listen, I would I would grant leave to file and let this case sit on our docket for a while, um, which is a weird position, but not an indefensible one. Okay. Um, the hard question, and this is, you know, this is where me, the Fed courts professor versus me, the, you know, the sort of person in the real world, I think, runs into each other, like, you know, struggles, um, is there's a way in which I think the court could have done more of a service had it actually said something about the merits, um, right? Like, you know, a, a two sentence standing decision is technically correct. I mean, I, 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 there's nothing to me assailable about it. But in that moment, would it really have been, you know, 
could the court have actually accomplished something by saying, even if there was standing, like just a concurring opinion that just says, even if there was standing, we would not find these claims attractive on the merits. Like just something to sort of, you know, definitively close the door on all of this. The, so the Fed course professor in me says, no, that's right. not the appropriate, that's not, that's not what the Supreme Court should be doing. You know, I, I wonder if this was a moment for the court to be a little bit more proactive. Certainly, if it ever was going to, as as you say, like that would not be the norm. They don't normally, I'm hard pressed to think of something where they have done something quite like that, although I'm sure there must be examples. Uh, But if you're ever going to do it, this would have been an even stronger signal. Um, That said, it was a strong signal. It was, it was correctly interpreted, you know, all across the dial as, as the Supreme Court trying to send a strong signal of don't think we're going to help you out in this outrageous thing you're attempting. Uh, and it seems to have really put things to bed. So, that, I mean, it's interesting, uh, right? The Electoral College today. Um, it's interesting. This, I, I think it put things to bed. That together with the Electoral College vote today, um, or yesterday, I'm sorry, where there were no faithless electors. Um, I think the two of those things together were what what we might think of as the establishment Republicans in the Senate were waiting for, right? So we saw a whole lot today from Mitch McConnell, from John Cornyn, from John Thune, right? From the leadership. Yeah, leadership, yeah. Um, even Lindsey Graham, right? Finally calling um, Biden the president-elect and then promptly going on to talk about, you know, concerns he has over his nominees. Um, <laughs> the, you know, excellent. Well, um, in a way, that is return to politics. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. There's a question about how quickly these people can return to you know can pretend that like the last six weeks didn't happen. But um, there is still nonsense out there, and and you know the there's even if I mean even if the the and the net result of what happened yesterday with the electoral college and Mitch McConnell is that there isn't even going to be a challenge on January sixth that like no senator is going to join. Um, um, you know, a Mo Brooks challenge to any of the electors, which would be the best possible scenario. You know, we've still done a ton of damage oh, um, sure. to how our elections work. And and now, like, I mean, just the next time around, Bobby, everyone's going to assume that Election Day itself is just like the opening salvo and that everything what matters is the six weeks of litigation that follows it. That is just not a healthy place no, and, right, for us to be in. And that must not happen. This must not become the norm. It must be so consistently Uh-oh. drilled I to have lost Bobby, everybody. everyone's Stand head. By. I recognize there are lots of people for whom absolutely this is how it's going to happen. But we've got to all fight against the normalization of this at, at every opportunity, which I feel like we're trying to do right now. And I realize we're probably preaching to the choir. There, it'd be, I'd be curious to know if you are if you are one of our listeners who listens to all this sort of in sort of a, you guys are wrong about everything mode on this issue. And you feel that in fact, it was all appropriate what the president's been attempting. Um, oh, I think I just lost the signal. Steve, do you, are you still there? Steve, can you hear Weird. me? Now? I can hear you now. All right. Have you, did you pause the recording? Or are we still going? We're still going. Great. Hey everybody. I lost power there at my house for a second. No, no, I mean, I'm, I'm going to delete out the, I'll, I'll delete out the, the minute and a half that we just had, but, right. but, uh, I just I figured it's better to have one file. That was two. your golden opportunity to. <laughs> well, let me try to let me because I can't remember where I was. I'll sort of pick up with a clean. You look iPhone. good when you, you your frozen picture on my iPad looked really good. Usually, it's not like that. It's almost always like. 
as opposed to like someone caught me last night on CNN, um, uh, looking like rolling my rolling my eyes and looking up in the sky like. Karen uh, actually posted. Karen you, put that picture on admit, the internet. That is, that is a classic Steve look. That's a, that is a classic. That is, that is not. <laughs> that is not requiring a great deal of waiting to spot that you, one. You, you, you've, you've seen that before, huh? <laughs> I think that used to be like. Didn't you used to have that like on your Facebook page or something? So I, I had. I had a. I had a smirk. I had my 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 my. You had my, one of these. You had one of these. My profile picture on on Twitter for a long time was a smirk from a congressional hearing. Um, and and I decided that that, that there's that maybe that wasn't the most professional thing to put okay. on my on my Twitter profile. All right. Well, I actually think you should include all of this and. Uh, oh, I, I, oh, this oh, this banter is definitely coming to the episode. I'm just going to delete the the literally empty <laughs> air. I was like, Bobby, <laughs> so, Bobby, are you there? It's actually good. I think that was uh, that was uh, God's way of saying you're beating a dead horse. We can't normalize this sort of stuff. Yes, God we, has weighed in. There's a sizable uh, percentage of people out there we now know who absolutely are cool with this. And it's the job of people who really care about facts, who care about the rule of law, who care about the larger values that supersede uh, ultimately petty partisan divisions. Um, it's the job of all of us to continue to say this isn't okay. And whether you're liberal, conservative, libertarian, progressive, whatever your cup of tea is, uh, you got to press back against this uh, idea that trying to subvert the democratic process itself with falsehoods is ever tolerable. It's not. Rant over. Uh, no, no. I mean, the only thing I don't understand is how you lost power and I didn't. <laughs> I mean, our houses, our houses are literally we're literally on the same side of the street. So Bobby and I, for folks who who don't know, live on um, streets that are consecutive streets where our houses are actually on the same side. So Bobby's on the north side of his street. I'm on the south side of mine. And we're like, what, four houses down from each other? What we got to do is over the years, accumulate property between us like it's a monopoly game. Easements. We just need an easement. Did, oh, we should propose something. A little, we'll, we'll rebuild the fences to create a pathway. Totally. totally. <laughs> Set up a podcast clubhouse high up in a well, tree. And, and, and listen, I mean, Maddie's best friend just moved two houses next to you. So I'm sure we can I get know. the Sanders in on it. Oh, the Sanders is great. Um, yeah. All right. All right. Anyway. So uh, that's that's back, back to national security law. Then that's the demise of the Texas suit. The electors. So, so, so really quickly, so let's yeah. just talk about what happens from here. So the electoral yeah, yeah, college voted yesterday. Um, not, no matter what you hear about lawsuits or I don't know anything else at this point, nothing matters now except the joint session of Congress on January sixth, where they open the electoral votes and they count them. Um, members of the House can and probably will object to at least some of these electors, but unless a senator joins the objection, the objections go nowhere. Um, and this is why I think McConnell's trying very, very hard to keep his caucus in line for reasons that I think are complicated. Um, but even if a senator joins the objection, um, this would still go nowhere unless a majority of the Senate voted to disqualify a slate of electors. Um, given that the Senate on January 6th is going to have a 51-48 Republican majority, that means any two Republicans can prevent that from happening. And there are like 11 on record already as saying oh, yeah. they won't do that. No, absolutely. No, I, I don't think there's going to be any there. I'd be very surprised if there's any Senate support for this. But wait, what about the safe harbor provision? What work is it doing if, in theory, the, the Senate majority could support such an effort if a House majority emerged, which it won't, obviously, but if it right. did? 
So this is where we get in the sum debate. So the safe harbor date, which was, of course, last week, um, that's the date under the Electoral Count of 1887, where if a state certifies its electors by then, that certification is supposed to be conclusive in Congress. And what that's supposed to mean is that it's actually not appropriate, even if both chambers agreed, to dispute a valid slate of electors certified by that date. The problem, Bobby, is that the Electoral Count Act says, right, that the electors have to be, there's a, there's a particular phrase I'm not going to remember, but like, fairly qualified or duly elected or something like that. And, you know, there's at least an argument that creates wiggle room for majorities of both houses of Congress to say, well, even though these electors were certified on time, we don't think they were, you know, the result of a valid, fair, blah, blah, blah election. So, um, Mr. Fed Courts, yeah. would, uh, if someone tries to take that to court, if it ha- if it's not going to happen, but if it were to happen in a way that had real backing and it mattered, could one of the aggrieved senators or representatives get a judge to interpret the safe harbor statute and rule on it in an enforceable way. So I think it would have to be one of the disqualified electors, um, right? That, um, okay. but, but, but I also, I mean, man, there'd be a really strong argument that that's a non-justiciable political question. Yep. And that even if the 12th amendment doesn't commit that to Congress, I mean, doesn't commit that to the political branches, the 12th amendment as implemented by the electoral count act of 1887 does, um, but, you know, I, I mean, the reality is there's a one of the new favorite right wing crazy legal arguments that makes no sense is that the Electoral Count Act itself is unconstitutional insofar as it binds Congress. Um, that's, you know, I, I, I am not especially uh, taken of that argument. I, I do think there are any number of traps and pitfalls in our electoral process that we are going to end up narrowly avoiding this time around. Yeah. Um, and, you know, screaming out for common sense reforms going forward. But the reality of the situation is that because Democrats control the House, um, not, none of the mischief in Michigan that could happen. In, because the, Sorry, because the Democrats control the House and because there are going to be at least two and probably a lot more than two Senate Republicans who are not going to go along with this. Um, those pitfalls and traps are dead letters for the moment, but not necessarily for the future. Oh, boy. All right. Yep. Well, let's hope it never comes up again. Uh, did you know today that the president retweeted uh, a tweet that about martial law? It was calling now, well, related, I guess, but it was calling for the jailing of the yes. Georgia state of Republican officials, lifelong Republican conservatives who simply did their job and wouldn't go along with the uh, the big con, uh, calling for them to be put in jail and depicting them wearing Chinese uh, flags. It's really unbelievable. It's way past I mean, worse. It's and and you know I a lot of it, it, the 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 last one the last one off the sinking ship is going to be an interesting thing to watch. But you know this only we only got this far because people who are now turning their backs on the president spent the better part of four years enabling him. There's there's way too much enabling. Way too much yep. enabling. Yeah, um, which is to say there was enabling. Any of but it- by the way, for those of you out there who are still worried, um, no, the president is not going to declare martial law tomorrow and stop Congress from meeting on January 6th. Like, well, yeah, I mean, I, the- I got a few calls today from reports saying, like, is there something to this? Can he use the insurrection? Can you, can you talk about the insurrection act? Like, <laughs> I don't even know how to talk about this. It's like playing tennis and the, the ball's being hit outside the lines. You're supposed to still play. This isn't. This doesn't even make sense. There's no there. No, 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 no. Outside the lines is fine because you can still get to the ball. It's like playing tennis where one of you is holding a racket and the other one's holding a piece of paper. Like I mean, uh, you know, I mean the that might have changed um, my game. Well, it depends on who's holding the piece of paper. Um, so you know, listen, I, I am, I, I am, cer- I certainly understand that people's emotions are raw and that everyone's tempers are short. Um, there is, you know, obviously lots of crazy stuff the president could try to pull. 
but there's no plausible scenario where he could prevent Congress from meeting on January 6th. And even if he did, where that preventing Congress from meeting would somehow allow him to continue in the presidency as of January 20th. I mean, the reality is like none of this goes anywhere. This is why the Supreme Court's denial of the application for emergency relief in the Pennsylvania case last week and the denial of the Texas nonsense craziness um, really was the end of the road legally because there's no other plausible pathway to prevent the inevitable from happening in Congress on January 6th. And that includes the president resorting to preposterous assertions of authority that we've never seen in American history before. Yep. All right. So shall we leave uh, the twilight of Trumplandia for the moment and uh, move Indeed. on to other things? Although I, I do say I do suspect that there will be. I mean, you know, the Michael Flynn pardon is a tw- is a Trumplandia twilight thing. You know, I think there's going to be more of that in the next you know well, month the, and, and the, five days. The pardons, the pardons are coming. Um, mm. I really get. We are going to have to make a pardon bingo chart. <laughs> and, and center you get a pardon you get a pardon center square okay listeners somebody make a good one that's got the obvious and then the not so obvious uh all i ask is that the center square have trump himself mm. and uh you gotta have lots of family on there gotta have rudy on there uh i think you gotta put ken paxton on there i don't know if his if his uh his little but he, is- I mean, he failed I know. I don't know if he's uh, if he's going to get it or not, but he he did try. Um, that'll be quite something if that happens. We shall see. All right, on to other things. Time for the uh, uh, our Cybertruck segment. Since the cyber the the Tesla Cybertruck is now being built near our airport here, and I guess Elon himself has didn't didn't he say he was moving to this area? Although it's been kind of, I mean, the guy probably has like twenty houses. In any event. Um, Let's talk first about the solar winds story. This has been really generating headlines in in the cybersecurity, data security world over the past few days. This really goes back about a week or so when FireEye, the the extremely capable cybersecurity firm, announced that it itself had been breached and that some state actor had made off with uh, some of its penetration testing uh, tools, some of its capabilities. And that was widely recognized at the time as as a pretty substantial bit of espionage by some foreign entity, almost certainly the Russians. And then you find out more recently that, oh, it's it's a much bigger story than that. And it boils down to this. Sometime, prob- sometime before March of this current year, probably through an exploitation involving... Uh, the Microsoft 365 uh, productivity suite being used by Austin-based company SolarWinds, which is a maker of IT management software, tools that a company can use or a government entity can use to have you know complete visibility into their IT stack, to understand what's going on in their network, and to take various steps to manage their IT. Uh, it is a very successful company. It's used by everybody. I mean, it's it's international. It's used by huge companies, major government agencies. It's just, it's a great tool. The, the particular platform, Orion is the name of the platform. That's sort of the vehicle that's an issue here. Um, in any event, what, what ends up happening is there's some kind of breach of solar winds, unbeknownst to them. And of course, this, this can happen to anybody. Um, and through that, one way or the other, an entity that the Washington Post later reports is uh, is uh, the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service, uh, SVR. So think think like their NSA. Um, it's what it's doing is it's it's well aware that SolarWinds 
Orion product is in all these very attractive target sets and that SolarWinds has the ability to issue trusted updates, or in this case with Orion, they can make available trusted updates and Orion customers will then choose to take that um, that signed update on board their system. So the idea is if you can get behind the curtain on the SolarWinds side, corrupt, you know, implant malware in that update, that will sneak you in Trojan style into all these different uh, attractive targets. That's what happened. And so between March and May, some amount of these corrupted updates uh, occurred. And then a few days ago, we learned that first, I think we learned that Treasury and Commerce had been breached in this way. And what you need to sort of imagine is that for for entities that use Orion as their IT management uh, tool, when they accepted the update that had the malware in it, what it did was it created a backdoor in their systems. Um, and so the Russians were able through you know, a third-party command and control server to take whatever actions. They could drop malware, which they did in some cases, apparently. They can extract files, a lot of capabilities there. They're inside the, inside the line, as it were. Um, and since then, since Orion was also used by lots of other people, drip by drip, we're learning about more and more U.S. government agencies. Uh, we heard something about an unspecified part of DHS. Uh, that doesn't mean it was CISA. It might or might not have been. I don't know. Uh, but I think more recently we've heard about some parts of the State Department, possibly others. And this is probably just tip of the iceberg. But here's the thing. Some more reporting has indicated that um, it looks a lot like the, the malware spread very widely, but the Russians had a very specific target set in mind and were concentrating their actual use and exploitation of the malware on these U.S. government targets. Um, and by the way, it, it needs to be said, I, th I believe that Chris being at Reuters uh, initially broke the story, which is huge. Good job, Chris. Um, so a lot of the initial coverage was saying, oh, my God, the Russians are attacking the United States again. It's the 2016 election all over again. And I'm very happy to see, and it shows maturation in the, uh, the journalism that covers cyber affairs, uh, that pretty quickly that's been sort of, that sort of framing has been walk, walked back to account for the fact that this appears to be an espionage operation. Now, maybe it'll evolve and change later on, but on present facts, this was espionage of a, in the cyber domain, yes, but of a very conventional source. The Russians trying to hack our government entities, much as presumably we try to hack theirs. That does not mean it's okay in the sense that we should say, oh, well, then it's fine. Of course, it's never fine to be the victim of espionage uh, by your adversaries. Um, but it's not wrongful in the same normative sense as the 2016 election interference. At least that's what I would argue. Um, so we'll see. There's going to be all kinds of legal fallout from this, no doubt. But we're not really there yet. Um, so maybe we should pivot to TikTok, where there's there's lots of legal fallout. As we've talked TikTok, about TikTok, yeah, and as we talked about many times on the show, the IEPA order and the Cepheus order. We need a good sound effect for Cepheus. Yeah, Cepheus. Yeah, it's not. It just doesn't roll off the tongue. Cepheus. Oh my gosh, how'd you do that? That was great. Um, yeah. I can't replicate that. Those orders, one's in trouble in the courts, and the other one is in trouble for, I guess, lack of willpower in the executive branch, which is hilarious. The IEPA order has been enjoined preliminarily by a number of courts, uh, either on First Amendment grounds in some cases, which I think is actually a rather weak argument or on statutory grounds in other cases, it's a stronger argument, 
because IEPA contains a little carve out where sanction authority can't be used if it'll have the direct or indirect effect of preventing the transmission of informational materials. Um, that issue was before the DC circuit yesterday in TikTok versus Trump. There's like very little coverage of this. It was sort of amazing. Um, you could listen to the oral argument on the DC circuit's website. I did earlier today. Um, I think they're in tr the government's in trouble on this one. The argument was being put forward in effect that, look, the, the information, if you want to communicate with people in China, heck, if you want to communicate with ByteDance, you can still do it, just not through this one channel, this business enterprise that happens to be an information transmission business, but it's not like the information can't be shared. An inconvenience then, but not a prohibition. And judges Rogers and Millet seem pretty unconvinced by that. Um, I mean, normally we want to be careful reading into the questions, but that, it wasn't that subtle. Wilkins sounded more sympathetic, but not, at best, I think the government loses here two to one. That's a, that's a tough panel for the government. It is. Uh, it may be 3-0. But then what's what's funny is none of this should really matter because there is a CFIUS divestiture order. And a CFIUS divestiture order. And the Trump administration keeps giving extensions because ByteDance isn't really doing anything to try to sell off the company at this point. It's pretty clear that uh, they may not have to and that China would not approve the sale even if they would. Uh, it's a game of chicken, Steve. And the Trump administration seems to be chickening out on this one. Now, they haven't given it up yet, but they just keep doing extensions. And it doesn't look like they have the nerve to say, all right, no more extensions. We're going to court for an enforcement order, which CFIUS authorizes. Uh, they don't seem interested in doing it. So very much to my surprise, uh, I suspect at this point, TikTok is going to survive without a forced sale, which is really something. Um, so that's impressive. I, I don't know what the Biden administration wants to do about this one. It's a this is a poison chalice being left in the cupboard for them because mm -hmm. if they do anything to retract the order on the grounds that basically it was just it was silliness to do it, well, they're going to get blasted for that, and there'll be a lot of see, we told you they were soft on China, so they're not going to want to do that. Uh, and there's something to be said for getting into court and aggressively litigating some of the IEPASCOPE claims and certainly the First Amendment claims. Because we're not done with information-related litigation involving sanctions in Chinese companies. So it could be that what actually ends up happening is that the Biden administration is the one that ultimately brings this ship into port after the Trump administration proved unable to do it, even if the Biden folks would never have done it in the initial instance. Whew. I mean, the, the, the number of the number of areas where that's going to be an interesting question for the Biden administration. Do do we keep on keeping on with this thing we never would have done in the first place or do we drop it like that's, you know, this is just one of the hundreds of places where that's going to be an interesting and pretty like quick right consideration for the new administration. Uh, concur. You know, Stuart Baker's awesome podcast, the Steptoe Cyberlaw podcast, which you should all be listening to. Uh, they talk about this a lot. And Stuart always says that what you know, basically all the possible uh, buttons are being pressed on China issues by the administration on the way out. Um, and I would say for the most part, if not entirely, for almost always for very good reasons, um, it's going to set the Biden administration up arguably in a very, very attractive position insofar as where it feels like it wants to walk things back as part of negotiations to perhaps, you know, settle some of the, the trade uh challenges they've got, they'll have some things they could walk back from. There are a lot of steps that might have actually been tricky for them to take that they might be glad have been taken for them now. So there'll be 
you know, eventually when we get closer to the big moment in January, we'll have to start doing our preview or predictions of things that will change, things that won't change. And, and by the way, we should go back and revisit all of our, our Trump predictions. You know, I think a lot of us thought there was going to be interrogation law change. And, yep. Yeah. He never Guantanamo. Did. Guantanamo. Yeah. Oh, you know, although actually, I, I have a vague recollection, and, and I'm, I'm curious if this is just, you know, uh, wishful thinking, that actually one of us predicted that actually he wouldn't do anything on Guantanamo and that we would end the administration much where we started it. Yeah. But, I, I think you and I both thought that bringing new detainees there was all talk. It was yeah. all had no cattle, as we say. But 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 speaking of Guantanamo, yeah. Can we uh let's let's uh, check in, let's check in with our friends. Uh, it's going well, Go, going very well. Um, uh, um, this sounds familiar. A judge issue. What? What now? What? What now? What is it? Well, so so the what now is actually a what that we already identified, which is um, the new judge who had been. So so let's back up a second. Um, so. Let me try to figure it out. So Judge Cohen, who had been presiding, who really had gotten the ball moving on the 9-11 trial and actually had made some real progress, retired um, in April of this year. Judge Cohen was the third judge to preside over um, the 9-11 trial since August of 2018. Um, so Judge Cohen retired in April. Um, the chief judge of the military commissions, Army Colonel Watkins, um, sort of took over in a caretaker capacity from April until September. Um, when he appointed a new full-time judge, Marine Corps Colonel Stephen Keene, um, Keene served Bobby for two weeks before he recused um, for, for reasons that I think we have some suspicion about, but not no formal confirmation. Um, and so on, in light of Keene's recusal, Watkins then appointed a new judge, Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Matthew McCall. Um, and as you and I and a number of other people pointed out, the second McCall was appointed, he wasn't actually eligible for the appointment because he did not meet the military commission's regulations own requisite um, for experience, uh, which, you know, it's only the most complicated capital trial in American history. Why would you want the judge to have any experience? I mean, um, so, so as of, I think what yesterday, Carol Rosenberg, as always with the scoop um, judge, uh, sorry, Colonel Watkins has reassigned the case at least temporarily back to him um, but this is only a caretaker move. I'm sure Colonel Watkins is currently looking for Bobby. Wait for it. The eighth judge, seven if we don't count Watkins twice, but like the eighth, the either the seventh or the, the eighth Grover, judge. So he's the Grover Cleveland of military. <laughs> he is the Grover Cleveland. But, but wait, it's worse than that, right? Since August of 2018, like this, eight judges in two years and four months, like. That is insane. Meanwhile, the 9-11 trial still bogged down in pretrial proceedings, complicated by the inability of anyone to meaningfully go to Guantanamo in the middle of COVID. So I just, I mean, I, I, I can't, I mean, the, I, I, get, I, I don't know if you've gotten this, this inquiry from reporters. I know I have. Like, what, what should the Biden administration do about the military commissions? I mean, <laughs> my answer is, like, just start burning and don't look back. I mean... Oh, yeah, they need the hot tub time machine for that one. And- I mean, I'll have to say, like, I mean, listen, I mean, I mean just the, we've said this before, and I know I'm beating a dead horse, but like, imagine you are the D.C. Circuit hearing the post-capital conviction appeal of the 9-11 defendants in a case that took 14 years, went through 11 trial judges, and had all kinds of baked-in evidentiary problems. I mean, I just, the, ugh. I know, I, and, and what really galls me is that 
the the families and survivors and all of us who in various ways were the extended victims of the 9-11 attacks, if this thing had been prosecuted in federal civilian court, the convictions would have been would have occurred you know, more than a decade ago, or at least a decade ago. Um, very likely there would have been executions already for KSM, I suspect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ramzi bin Al-Sheib probably. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, who knows? But yeah. And I'm not saying it was entirely predictable at the moment. But the folks, it's been, folks it's in November 2001 who were thinking, hey, let's follow the Kieran model. Right. I understand it's easy for me to second guess that with the benefit of two decades of is, hindsight's not even the word. But, um, but nonetheless... Yes. Um, all right. Really quickly, should I talk about Briggs and then we can do NDAA? Yeah. So Briggs, sorry, man. Yeah. It happens. So, uh, uh, so, so, so while this is all going on, the Supreme Court handed down the first opinions and argued cases last Thursday, um, and Briggs was among them. Um, I, I will just so so I'll, I'll talk about the opinion in a second, but the I, I just want to recount the 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 how I learned about it. So I'm on the CNN call that we always do, Bobby, when the Supreme Court hands out opinions. And when the court's been sitting remotely for COVID, they've just been posting the opinions to their webpage at the appointed moment. Um, and so um, Briggs was, I think, the third case, the second case, handed down on Thursday, the second of four. And I saw, so I see the entry in the Supreme Court opinions table for United States versus Briggs, and my heart starts beating. And then I see the letter of the justice who wrote the majority opinion, uh, that's posted in the table too. And it was an A. And I was like, "Welp." <laughs> Were you like... <laughs> And, you know, obviously people can't see me, but I'm hands up celebrating. Like, yeah, yeah. Uh... No, I mean, no, because I knew that if it came out this early, it was bad for us. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, my, my hope was that we had really given the court a lot to chew on and that they were going to be pretty well divided over some of our statutory arguments. And in fact, it was eight nothing. Um, so we got, we got a nine and a half page opinion from Justice Alito that, um, I, let me just say, I, I, you know, folks should go read this nine and a half page opinion. I think he does not remotely take seriously most of our better arguments. He says at one point, you know, it's a reasonable argument from the respondents. And he says, you could imagine why. It's like, dude, like, <laughs> give us a little bit more than that. So, Damn the faint it, praise. Um, it's disappointing. It's, I don't think it's especially satisfying analytically, but it is what it is. Sorry, man. And the bottom line, by the way, I, people probably know, so what's the bottom line? So the bottom line is that um, for any sexual assault offenses committed in the military, between, gosh, November 14th, 1986 and January, sorry, and January 5th, 2006, the statute of limitations doesn't exist. Whereas we had been arguing that it was five years. So there you go. There you go. Well, you gave it, a, you gave it the old college try. Yeah. One of these days, people are going to stop letting me take Supreme Court cases if I don't actually ever win one. <laughs> you know, it's. Oh, and three. Oh, and three. It's, it's like diving or dancing or skating or any other judge competition where the level of difficulty of the move attempted <laughs> is the real measure of the performance. And, uh, yeah, but zero times 100 is still zero, dude. I don't know. I've heard a lot of changes to math lately. Judging from like <laughs> the, the way they do math now with my kids, there'll be things where I'm like, oh yeah, I know that. Show me that. Show me that thing you're working on. And they'll be like, you know, there'll be some relatively simple arithmetic thing and i'll be like I, okay here's how you do that and they're like no 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 Dad, that's not how it's done anymore that's like the 
Really. I, I will say this. I mean, Br- Briggs is not going to make it into any, I think, sophisticated discussions of the Supreme Court's term because I don't think it's going to go down as one of the big cases. I, I will say that for folks who think that the court is consistently committed to textualism, uh, I submit Justice Alito's opinion as a counterexample. Mm. Well, um, what else we got? We mentioned that we would say something about the December 9th story from Katie Bo Williams uh, about the Defense Department uh, possibly terminating a long-standing arrangement that it has with CIA for DOD to provide a, a variety of forms of support to CIA uh, covert counterterrorism operations. Uh, you know, combining that with the larger effort to draw down in Afghanistan, uh, Iraq, and Somalia, it's it's really pretty extraordinary. Now, who knows if this is going to be completed or not, but I'll say this. This this is not the sort of one agency decides to go one way while the other agency is still going the other way on a first tier question of what the U.S. government's doing in the world. I mean, lives are on the line on all sides of this thing. And if it's time to if it's time to not be doing these CIA operations, then that needs to be a collective federal government decision. But if they're going to be doing that, the idea that DOD would just sort of walk away from that, I think is frankly rather outrageous. On the other hand, um, maybe this sets up some momentum towards getting CIA out of the uh, the lethal force business altogether, which was something that was, I guess I would characterize it during the Obama administrations as having been something that they pushed somewhat for, but certainly didn't push it across the finish line and didn't insist upon. Uh, And one thing people are wondering about the Biden administration is, will it revive that possibility, specifically ending uh, use of lethal force by the CIA in Title 50 covert actions, and instead allocating that function when it is to be done exclusively to either JSOC or some other uh, aspect of the military operating under Title 10 authorities, where the U.S. role wouldn't be deniable. My prediction, um, whatever they might say, we're not going to be entirely for the long term out of the Title 50 version of this because there may and often perhaps will be circumstances where the host nation is willing to give consent to the U.S. operation of their territory only on condition that it not be the U.S. military and or that the U.S. sponsoring role not be apparent or acknowledged. But maybe I'm wrong. Anyways, that's something to look for. Uh, do we want to say anything about the the news from last Thursday about someone actually winning their Gitmo periodic review board? What uh, happened? Really happened. Termination. I, I, my jaw dropped. I, I thought there was no way that was going to happen under, under Trump. And uh, it turns out, I think it was it. A, was it a Yemeni citizen? Not one of the of ones course. already cleared for transfer, but a new one now. A new Yemeni. So, so this is. I mean, you know, there's a, there's a. As you mentioned in when we were talking beforehand, there's a great story in the New York Times today. I think what from Charlie Savage and Eric Schmidt. Yep. Um, about some of the challenges that President Elect, soon to be President Biden, is going to face with regard to Guantanamo, and of course he hasn't made nearly the same kinds of you know quite public commitments about Guantanamo that that Obama did. Um, and you know, it seems to me that it's worth stressing because President Trump never succeeded in sort of disassembling the periodic review board process. Actually, the easiest thing for Biden to do would be to start with the category of, I think, all Yemenis um, who have been cleared by PRBs. I think it's like, Bobby, six of them, six or seven. I've gotten here. So 40 total people 
Yep. Uh, I'm, I'm basically quoting from Eric and Charlie's article. Nine charged or convicted yep. already of military commission war crime offenses. Uh, six recommended for transfer with security conditions. I guess it was five before and now it's six. I guess that, that must be including the new PRB. So, okay. you know, the, I mean, it seems to me that the very, very first thing Biden could do consistent with the statutory transfer restrictions and consistent with the Obama administration's approach is to actually work to effectuate the transfer of those six, um, which, of course, still leaves the nine on the commission side and another 25, right, who are in the detention side and not cleared. But at least you, you know, take a bite at the population. Yeah, I'll, I'll go on the limb and say within the first year, those uh, those six that are already cleared for transfer under appropriate terms will go back, I think, all to Yemen. And I think we'll start seeing a more souped up, more transparent and, and more, shall we say, invigorated periodic review board process to try to whittle down the other 25 while they Great. then try to figure out whether there's a deal they can do with Congress to onshore those who are still facing trial or who've already been convicted. And then that will be, and it'll be all covered over with this layer of fiscal responsibility because yeah. of the, the almost comical costs that are being expended. Well, especially now, because I mean, as, as Eric and Charlie point out, the costs that are going to, it's going to take to keep Guantanamo, the, the upkeep in the coming decade are just insane. Um, and I, Bobby, I'll just say like so many other things, I think part of the Feasibility of that depends upon whether he's dealing with a 50-50 Senate or a Republican majority Senate. Yeah, that's true. That's so true. All right. Uh, so, much, so much depends upon what's going to happen in Georgia. That's very interesting. I hadn't really you know, paid attention. Obviously, there's so much that hangs on that. But you're right. That if, uh, if depending on how the election in Georgia goes, the elections in Georgia go, that could actually uncork the NDA bottle after all this time. And then, and then Gitmo really will wind up. Um, should we talk really quickly about the NDA before getting yeah, I'll, do a, I'll do a lightning round take on section 1702 of the, you know, probably about to get vetoed, but possibly. Do you think? Uh, what, that he's going to veto it? Yeah. I mean, he, I, I think he's sure, a coward. He sure has insisted repeatedly he's going to. He keeps changing the reason. Right. Um, and maybe he won't, right? I mean, he, he chickened out on TikTok, so uh, maybe he'll chicken out on this too. Um, or he may call the bluff, and then it'll be so interesting to see if the if, if there's an override vote. A lot of people have kind of simplistically said, "Well, the vote to pass in both houses was so high." That's not Doesn't the matter. same thing as a vote to override no, at all. No, so we don't know. But I think sooner or later this becomes law for sure. And uh, so, seventeen oh two. This is a modification. Interesting little in the weeds, classic national security law bit that I'd like to get into real quick. The idea is the following. Um, there are some operations that, if carried out by CIA, would be covered action covered by Title 50, meaning the president's got to sign a written finding, and that must be provided within a certain period of time to the House and Senate Intelligence Committees for oversight purposes. But there's an exception to the definition of covered action that exempts traditional military activity, which awfully complicated, but suffice to say that if it's an entirely military operation, um, there are circumstances where things that are covered action as a functional matter, just are exempted from these rules. And it keeps DOD operations that walk and talk like covert action from being subjected to the intelligence uh, process of covert action. So uh, that creates a gap, obviously, in oversight that one might think needs to be filled by a parallel structure that runs to the Armed Services Committee, because when you take significant actions to influence events overseas where the sponsoring role of the United States is not meant to be apparent or acknowledged, it's widely understood that the reason you have oversight and findings requirements 
is that you might get some harebrained schemes and those kinds of mechanisms help incentivize better decision-making. Well, uh, in the kinetic space with counterterrorism operations, this became a, a serious issue after 9-11. And eventually Congress, through the earlier NDAAs, uh, developed this idea of instead of Title 50 covert action, there could be what amount to Title 10 uh, sensitive military operations that were kinetic operations taking place outside of combat zones, in effect. And then there, there would be a Secretary of Defense's written finding. They don't call it a finding, but it's a notification. And then that would be shared to the House and Senate Armed Services Committee. Kind of parallel structure. Good idea. That's just good government. Mac Thornberry, Texas law graduate, Hokum Mac. Uh, Mac Thornberry was very centrally involved in crafting this. And then over time, it became apparent in more recent years that there was a somewhat similar state of affairs, at least potentially, with military cyber operations that also might be deniable, but fully military, militarily conducted with effects occurring outside of combat zones. And so gradually in more recent NDAAs, they created uh, what is now 10 U.S. Code Section 395, Sensitive Military Cyber Operations. Same kind of deal. So the long and the short of it is that the new NDAA is going to tweak what triggers that that Secretary of Defense must sign a written notification and it must be given to the Armed Services Committee requirement. They're going to get rid of the idea that, well, actually, I should explain first. The triggers are the military is doing it. It runs the risk of certain enumerated harms like collateral effects, uh, retaliation, blowback type risk, that sort of thing. Um, and the intent this is current law. The intent of the government is for the cyber effect to occur in a location geographically where we are not engaged in hostilities. This covers both defense and offense. All that would stay the same, except the geographic location of intended effect test would be replaced altogether, not by a geography test, by a nature of the target test. If the target is a foreign government or if a non-state actor working on behalf of a foreign government or else counting as a foreign terrorist organization, then all, and if those other considerations are still satisfied, then the notification regime kicks in, kicks in. So it, so no longer does the location of where the operation is going to have its effect. That is to say, no longer does the location of the server to be impacted matter at all in the analysis that probably will greatly simplify things uh, for cybercom and DOD lawyers more generally. Uh, the only funny thing is, They've, they've written that uh, scope of the identity of the triggering target. So specifically, they, they seem to have excluded non-state actors that are not terrorist organizations and that aren't working for a foreign state. And the effect is to, in theory, leave open the possibility of operations against them, like a transnational criminal group, perhaps involved in, oh, I don't know, ransomware stuff. Uh, this you could operate against them and you wouldn't need the SecDef to sign off on it and you wouldn't have to report it to the armed services committees, at least not under this authority. I'm not sure that, I don't think that was done on purpose. It's just an interesting and potentially important exclusion, especially considering the recent TrickBot story. But you know what, Steve? We've been going for a while. We got listeners well, yeah, but, who don't want to but, talk about any of this. But, but before we get frivolous, and I, I do want to, I'm not sure he vetoes. Uh, because because I think like the the worst possible thing that could happen to him on his way out would be to look super weak and uh, having fear of and, override and, and the override fear. I mean, I, I think I don't think he vetoes unless he's pretty darn confident that there aren't enough votes to override. That's interesting. And, 
and seeing and, Mitch, seeing Mitch talking about President Elect Biden today may have added to his sense that he can't trust those folks. Anymore. I mean, that's, I mean, I mean, the the squishes, right? I mean, the, the squishes are getting squishy. Um, and this allows me to bring up one of the most irrelevant trivia trivia things I know, which is um, Bobby. Since 1901, only one president who served at least one full term as president had no vetoes overridden. Okay, all right. It's not Truman. Um, you got to serve the full term. Wilson. Uh, nope. Mm. Eisenhower. Nope. I give up. LBJ. Really? LBJ is the only president uh, from mm. McKinley to the present um, who served at least. So JFK and Harding also had no veto overrides, right, but neither have made yeah. it all the way to yep. a full term. Um, LBJ served obviously more than a term and no veto overrides helps when you have the most progressive Congress in American history. Yeah. Master of the Senate indeed. Wow. That's super interesting. Great trivia. Mm-hmm. Um, um, Obama, Obama only had one, Josta. Wow. All right. Well, <laughs> so I, I, don't know. I, I like so we'll your see. theory that uh, he might choose to look stronger. He'll say something magnanimous, uh, you know, sounding in his own ears. And, oh yeah. That's Trump. He's so magnanimous. No, in his own ears. And, uh, and that'll be that. All right, uh, friends, if, time. if you're a Mandalorian fan and you don't want spoilers, thanks for listening. Bye. We'll talk to you soon. Three, two, one. All right. Spoiler hey. alert. Spoiler alert. All right. Uh, there's so much that was, I thought this was a great episode. Um, I liked a lot of things about it. I was, I was convinced the Miggs Mayfield character was going to be a real disappointment. And uh, had, it turns out to actually have a whole lot of, uh, a whole lot of principles. What's the guy's name? Is it? Bill Burns, not Bill Burns, something close to that shoot. Um, who played Things <laughs> Mayfield? It's the comedian. Um, ah, struggling. Bill Burr. Bill Burr. Bill Burr was awesome in that episode, I thought. Uh, and I thought actually some pretty good work to slip in actual character development. But the truth is the dialogue remains pretty weak on the show. There's not a lot of time. He didn't get that many lines and he pulled it off. I thought with the acting. So great job, Bill Burr um, more known for his comedy than for necessarily the acting side of it. Um, you've got Miggs is going to team up with Mando and Kara and Boba Fett and Fennec. And it's a, it's like, it's like a rogue one style mission. We got to, we got to find yet another really random, seemingly off in the middle of nowhere, secret Imperial facility where lots and lots of people are working hard all the time. And they're going to use like the Imperial Life 360 vision to geolocate Moff Gideon and uh, find out where he's at. I mean, the premise is is oh so contrived, but that's kind of how the whole show is. You just, I accept now, you just got to accept that it's going to be Dora the Explorer level contrivances about, I need to find the magic crystal. I got to cross through this and that. So then you got to get past that and focus on the cinematography and the filmmaking, the the special effects, the junkyard scene. How great was that? I thought that was fantastic. Um, they've been doing such a good job with episodes that kind of bring to visual life uh, slices and scenes of Empire. Kind of reminds me of like in in Solo, the Han Solo story. You kind of get these kind of glimpses of like sort of life in the Empire, or in this case, life in the uh, the the Republic's uh, prison system. What did you like, if anything, or did you hate the whole thing? I, I gotta confess, I did not like this. I mean, I, no! I, I found Bobby. How did it advance the plot? It entertained. Are, were, are you not entertained? 
as communists would say. I guess I'm no, not as communist as Maximus. Uh, no, it's it's Maximus says, "Are you not entertained?" Oh yeah, you're right. You're right. My bad. My bad. I wanted, I wanted that so badly to be Joaquin Phoenix who said that, but you're right. This is like this is like that scene in Clueless. Um, I think I know my Shakespeare. Well, I think I know my Mel Gibson. It was that funniest guy. <laughs> you're 100% right. I, score, touche. Okay, let me ask you this. What about just in the narrow details? Did you yes. not kind of enjoy? So when they're in the ca- the cafeteria scene, yes. which has a like strong Saturday Night Live undercover boss kind of feel yes, to it, it really um, and we'll get to the 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 reveal, you know, finally showing Pedro Pascal's face. But Ooh. I thought that uh, Richard Brake, the, an actor known for especially for his horror movie roles, very well cast to just be a deeply unsettling seeming, both in how he sounded and how he acted. Imperial officer who's just this this loathsome character who's kind of yucking it up about the war crimes pl- against civilians and his own disregard of his own troops lives uh th- that was a really good scene that could have been done much more woodenly and awkwardly and and it was so especially good because you knew Miggs was going to kill him mm-hmm. and you knew at that point there'd be there'd be a moment of probably some pretty good entertainment as everyone kind of stands there being like what you know, WTF. And, uh, and then there's like the, the trooper who's standing there like a high school kid with his tray, you know, like he should have had like a thing of milk on it. And he just stands there staring like, what the hell? Hey, Stormtroopers got to eat. They, they don't have to take their helmets off. They never do. Except for Miggs himself. Don't you think in some remote base where everyone's like kind of trapped there all by themselves, they'd all be like, who's that guy? I mean, if they never take their helmets off, they don't know. Right. Yeah, that's true. Then they'd be like, what's he doing with this helmet off? Okay. Uh, I didn't love the uh, sort of the plot device, you know, sequence of pirates with thermal detonators who came out there. But it set up what I thought was one of the better scenes they've done. I thought it was really cool to have a a clearly purposeful mirror image celebrate the handful of people that got from your team that got back to base and kind of humanizing all those, those troopers. I mean, there's a lot of humanizing the stormtroopers, but and and the sort of the imperial soldiers. I, I do still think um, that they've got a lot of explaining to do about how, like, so you know, if the timeline is when we're supposed to believe it is, like, how is the empire in such you know good spirits and good shape? And you know, where's my man? Where, where's my where's my red eye blue skin can't lose guy? I mean, it's time for Thrawn. Yeah, I know. Of course, I of course they're they're saving him for the season finale. Yeah, of course. you're probably only going to get about. A little bit of a reveal. This is the Disney model. One, one last thing I loved, I thought was just a subtle but awesome deal. So Mando, who's used to wearing the Beskar, he, he puts on the Stormtrooper gear, and then he has to get up on the roof to have the train, you know, classic top of a train fight um, one at a time with these guys. And it's hilarious as he thinks he can just put his forearm up with his armor to block these things. And just pieces of plastic go flying everywhere. And it's a nice touch that it, it's not just once – he doesn't. He just doesn't register it at first. He's like, "What the heck?" And then he has to do it again, and he's still getting pieces of plastic everywhere. And it finally dawns on him he's wearing the kind of armor that we've now seen pretty conclusively serves zero purpose whatsoever. <laughs> it doesn't protect anyone from anything. Well, no, it it, it serves plot. It, it serves, serves plot. it serves lots of plot. It saves a lot of money on uh, extras. I'll tell you it, that. It, it is so weird to be really into a show that I can't stand. It's like it reminds me a little bit of like How I Met Your Mother because How I Met Your Mother. I loved, even though I hated the lead character, like Ted Mosby. You like Ted Mosby? Sucks. That guy sucks. Okay. Oh my god! You're the whole you're the, the, here. 
the the show is amazing entirely because Ted sucks and all the people around him are amazing. Like every other character on the show is amazing. Ted Mosby sucks. What's so bad about Ted Mosby? You don't like architects? He's a whiny, bratty, um, uh, insecure, um, um, sort of self-involved, self-interested person um, who expects everyone to ba- you know bend to his every will, every woman, every moment. All right, then that's pretty sweeping. But uh, he's also not an especially that, that good teacher. Totally unjustified. I, I, I mean, you're not supposed to like Ted, right? Like you're supposed to, you know, Ted's the foil for the whole Fracken show. He's not like the, he's not the protagonist. I disagree. I think you're supposed to like Ted. I think he's, he was really? supposed to come off a little bit as perhaps immature in need of maturity. And that's what sets up the, you're supposed to contrast him with his own future self. And he's supposed to be a little bit the, the everyman in the story who's, he's not smooth like Barney. Um, does, does Ted really strike you as an everyman? Within Marshall, the realm, is, within is, the realm is, of Manhattan-based sitcoms. Isn't, isn't Marshall the everyman? A little bit more. You can't compete. Mar- Jason Siegel, he's the greatest. Marshall's awesome. Marshall is awesome. Yeah. Um, anyway, sorry. We, I don't know. I, we I can I, agree I, on that. I apologize for for, di- for diverging us into, into How I Met Your Mother. But it just like, so Mandalorian is just like, like I'm like, okay, here's another scene I'm not going to care about because it's not going to be interesting. Like, show me, you know, get us to, get us to Moff Gideon. Get us to Thrawn. Let's go. You need the saga elements, and we're getting too much of the week-to-week Western elements. Too much Bonanza, not enough real Star Wars. Indeed. All right, that's a good note to end on. Do we have a show title, by the way? That's why I can go to. That's why I can go to the Expanse. Um, I like uh, I like Trumplandia in the Twilight. Yep. Okay. Trumplandia. Uh, it's like the Homer in the gloaming. Um, <laughs> The random baseball reference for. The- um, what was the foot? What there was a there was a an NFL game this weekend that ended in like dense fog, and it reminded me of like the Homer in the gloaming. Um, anyway, not so first place Giants. Um, so the uh, he's at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladik. Um, if this is not enough Steve Vladik for you, please do check out In Loco Parentis or In Loco Parents. Um, it's at In Loco Parents on Twitter. It is streaming on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Please do check out episode one. Leave us a review. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like. And if that's not enough Bobby Chesney for you, that's kind of too bad. Go listen to Gary Clark Jr. and pretend it's me playing guitar. It's not, uh, but that's be cool. That, that, that sounds more profitable. That sounds like a, a bit, well, Karen's going to get mad at me. See, I'm already in trouble. I, I'm not even on the podcast with Karen. I'm in trouble. <laughs> All right. Anyway, uh, we'll be back next week for our, our holiday episode, including the, the annual debate, Die Hard, Christmas movie or awesome Christmas movie. (laughs) Adios.